We're going to be in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. And, and this morning, we're, we're looking at an old, familiar story. The story of an infant born of glory. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. God come down to us. And, and what I want us to do this morning is, is it's really just very, it's very simple. I want us to just gather around this passage, just lean into it together and hear the story of who Jesus is and why he came. I want to just behold Jesus together this morning, considering his might and his glory and his humility and his love and his presence and his peace. So let's read the passage together, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Yesterday morning, we, we woke to the destruction of storms, didn't we? I mean, our house was fine, but as uh, I was sitting there with my kids, I, I saw on my phone the, the videos of Mayfield, Kentucky, just leveled by a tornado. Just the whole town looked like it was gone. My kids and I watched that together, and we talked about it a little bit, and then they ran off to play. And a few minutes later, my five-year-old came in the room, and he goes, Dad, can the earth end? And I said, well, you know, God keeps it going, so it, it's not going to end. And he said, well, why did God not stop the tornado? It's <laughs> a really good question. And of course, I don't have an answer for that question. I mean, no one does. Uh, but I did tell him that God could stop the tornado. I mean, the Bible tells us that God is Lord over the storm. As powerful as the winds and rain are, God is infinitely greater. All the oceans are, are, are but a, a drop in his mighty hand. But he didn't stop the storm that night. Bad things happen in this world because of sin. When Adam and Eve fell, the earth was cursed and began to groan for our redemption. But while we can't say why God let that tornado come, we know it's not because he doesn't care. We know he cares 
because of our passage today. Christmas is proof that God will not let sin win in the end. He will not forsake us. He comes to break the curse. We don't know all of the answers to our various sufferings, but we do know because of Christmas that there is an end to them. Christmas is the the answer to our deepest pains. It's heaven's cry that God has not abandoned us. Some things in this life just don't make sense from our viewpoint. It's always that way. I mean, think of Joseph. Joseph, in, in this passage, did he understand everything that God was doing? When life doesn't make sense, when it's hard and confusing and even painful for us, it helps to know that there is a God above who hears our groans and sees our tears. And he has an answer. It's a surprising one. When the world by its sin waged war on God, the Lord of armies sent a baby. It's that baby to whom we look right now. And I mean, honestly, isn't he far more than what we imagined? He's all that we need. He's God. He's man. He's Emmanuel, God with man. And so I just want to look at each one of those things in turn now. Jesus is God, Jesus is man, and Jesus is Emmanuel. So first, Jesus is God. You know, one of the the, the difficulties of Christmas passages is that we're so familiar with them that they they kind of lose their impact over the years, don't they? We read them every year. We know them so well. But let's just try to look at this with unjaded ears. The baby in Mary's womb was not just another baby born long ago. The baby in Mary's womb was divine. Matthew tells us plainly, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We hear the same again when the angel told Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, the weight of these words is magnificent. From the Holy Spirit. Birth is always miraculous, but this birth was truly unique. The baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This was a divine child. God was coming. Now, perhaps we, we think this was an easy thing for Joseph to hear, or somehow easier for him to hear than it would be for us. But we need to understand how difficult and mind-boggling this would have been for him. Joseph was a Jew. God coming like this wasn't something that fit neatly into his theological construction. This was, this was crazy to him. I mean, if he were a Greek or a Roman and not a Jew, maybe he could have accepted it easier. Those gods disguised themselves as humans and came into the world. But Jews did not have a category for this kind of thing. God was was personal, 
but infinite. He's the creator of all, the sustainer of all, above everything and over everything, transcendent. The glory and majesty of God was so fearful that Jews wouldn't even say Yahweh or spell it because it was considered so holy. And here is an angel telling Joseph in a dream that this transcendent God is coming down to earth in the form of a human baby. It's not easy to accept, is it? It's not easy to believe. God is so massive. He's so big. He's so great. He's so transcendent. I mean, to get an idea of the magnitude, just think of all that Scripture says about God. I love how Ray Ortland put it in a sermon once. He said, Think of the names of God in the Bible. Yahweh, the one who is near. El Shaddai, the Almighty. El Elyon, the Most High. Adonai, Master. El Olam, the Everlasting God. El Kana, the Jealous God. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of Armies. Jehovah Raphaka, the Lord who heals you. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Think of the images of God in the Bible. King, shepherd, warrior, rock, refuge, shield, father, maker, judge, lawgiver, comforter, savior, lion, lamb, and many more. Think of the attributes of God in the Bible. Living, powerful, shrewd, just, merciful, pure, honest, faithful, joyful, patient, rich, Sovereign, kind, and above all, loving. Christmas means that God came down to us in Jesus. You know, maybe perhaps it's, it's difficult to accept Jesus is God. It's easier, I think, sometimes for us to think of him as some, I don't know, semi-God, uh, something like but less than God. I mean, could glory like that inhabit flesh like ours? Perhaps our construction of Jesus in our own mind is just too small. But think of what the Bible says about Jesus. Just for starters, John equated and identified Jesus with God in the opening chapters of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul confessed Christ as God in Colossians 2, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity. <laughs> Not partial deity. The author of Hebrews exalted Jesus as God in Hebrews 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love that verse. Jesus himself spoke of the glory he shares with the Father in John 17, verse 5. He said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus did not gain his glory that first Christmas morning. He's always had it. 
forever. Previously in John 10, in verse 30, Jesus identified himself with God as God by saying, I and the Father are one. He didn't mean one in mind, one in mission, merely one in essence. In John 14, verse 1, Jesus called people to believe in God, believe also in me. No wonder the Jewish leaders charged him with blasphemy. He proclaimed himself equal with God because he is God. Jesus told Thomas that to know him is to know the Father. He said no one can come to the Father except through him. He claimed the same knowledge as God in Matthew 11, verse 27, when he said all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Christmas is not about just some other baby born in humble beginnings who grew into merely a, a great teacher or a great healer or a great orator or a great leader. Christmas is about the God of glory coming down from heaven to save his people from their sins. It's the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty coming down to us. That's what Christmas is. In Jesus, God came into this world. And Joseph was to be his father. Can you imagine? Joseph was to be his father. He heard that message from the angel. Uh, of course, Joseph wasn't to be Jesus' father in, in kind of the traditional sense. He was to be the adoptive father of Jesus. <laughs> this is crazy to me. That's, what a reversal, right? Joseph didn't choose to be the father of the incarnate God. The incarnate God chose Joseph to be his father. <laughs> Jesus chose him. Joseph didn't choose Jesus. Doesn't that just scream of how Jesus is with us? We don't choose him. He chooses us. The child adopted the father, and this is the way of God. Starting way back in the Old Testament, Jesus chose a family for himself to whom he would one day come. As one ancient writer put it, among men, fathers adopt whomever they wish to be their sons. This son, however, adopted fathers whom he chose for himself. Among men, sons received the honor of birth from their fathers, but in Christ's case, the fathers received honor from the son. Why did God choose Joseph? I mean, there's lots of people in the world, right? Why Joseph? Because way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised King David one of his sons would rule forever. It had been a long time since that day. Perhaps people had forgotten that. But when the angel came to Joseph in the dream, what did he say to him? Joseph, son of David. 
In other words, Joseph had the lineage that God promised to bless. More was at stake with Joseph accepting God's call than another child being born into the world. This was the everlasting king promised long ago, coming to rule as foretold. This was God coming to his people to fulfill his promises. This was God being God, coming, speaking, choosing, acting, loving, saving. It turned Joseph's world upside down. In fact, it turned the whole world upside down. The baby in a manger was the Lord of lords and king of kings. The one for whom there was no room in the inn came to make room for heaven in heaven for sinners. The child who was born like us gave new birth that we may be like him. The boy in the barn was the glory of heaven. We have been visited not by a vision of God, not by an apparition of God, not even by a messenger of God, but by God himself. He got personally involved. This is the great hope in which we live. God has come. He stepped into our mess into our lives, into our existence, into our hopelessness. He brought his light into that. He came to bring us to himself. And he did it not from heaven, but from earth. Incarnate. He took on flesh. And it's to that that we now turn. So one, Jesus is God. Two, Jesus is man. In verse 21, the angel told Joseph that Mary would bear a son. A son. A baby boy. Here's how J.I. Packer put it. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. C.S. Lewis tried to help us grasp the humility of this. He said, The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, Think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. It's a step down like that. Humility like that. Jesus is God. He's also man. Just as Jesus is not something like God, but less than God, Jesus is not something like man, but less than man. He is fully man, even as he is fully God. He's thoroughly one of us, 
even as he's thoroughly unlike one of us in his divinity. He was born just like you were, just like your kids were. He grew up just like you did. His body changed and developed and matured. He had to learn how to walk, how to talk, how to do things for himself. My kids are still learning how to do things for themselves. He lived a human life just like you live. He ate food. He drank water. He laughed. He cried. He felt the coolness of the breeze on a warm summer day. He felt the chill of the night. He knew how good it felt to sit down and take your shoes off at the end of a long day's work. He felt the comfort of friendship. He experienced the joy of life at weddings and at parties. And he experienced the pain of life. He got splinters in his hands. He lost friends to illness and to death. He felt betrayal. He bled. He died. He went through it all. Every bit. The only difference between your human life and his is that he never sinned. But that doesn't mean he didn't feel the effects of sin. He certainly did. Nowhere more than on the cross where he took upon himself all the wrath of God. Our sin was due. Jesus is God. And Jesus is man. Fully both. Here's what that means. That means that God understands your life. The very real life that you live right now. In its joys and its sorrows. He understands. He understands you. He's been in your shoes. He even had a name like you do. In verse 21, God gave Joseph the responsibility of every father, naming his son. And you shall call his name Jesus. I love the, the dignity and the responsibility God places on Joseph here. <laughs> yeah, he revealed his name, but he gave Joseph the responsibility of giving him that name. No one else knew it. Can you imagine? Joseph, there was a moment in time where Joseph alone knew Jesus' name. I don't, things like that just blow my mind. <laughs> he wrote the name on the birth certificate. He shared it with everyone who asked. He named the Son of God. And the name meant something. It was communicating something. Every time he shared it, he was not only sharing a name, uh, uh, you know, like a label. I have four kids. I love all their names, but they're meaningless names, really. I got Jack, Luke, Andy, and Kate. Great names. Love those names. I don't have a clue what any of them really means. I just know they're my kids. But as Joseph would have shared the name Jesus with those who asked, 
he was communicating not only that I have a son, but this son has come to do something. His name had meaning. It means the Lord saves. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Do you realize that? The name Jesus means the Lord saves. When we proclaim the name of Jesus, we are proclaiming the salvation of Jesus. We are proclaiming the gospel and by speaking his name. That's amazing to me. This boy had a mission. Before he was born, he had a purpose. His name bore witness to it. He was to save his people. So what was he to save them from? From their enemies? God's people had many throughout the ages. From their suffering? I mean, there's plenty of that in the world. Maybe he would save them from disease or accidents or storms or disasters. But it wasn't any of those things. He was to save them from their sins. This takes us deep into the theology of the Bible. The greatest enemy to God's people is not anything outside of themselves. It's who they are. The sin they are born with. The sin we are born with. The most tragic thing about us is not what happens to us, but what happens in us, sin. Now, that doesn't mean terrible things don't happen to us. They do. But it does mean that we too are guilty of our own sin. As much as we may need salvation from others, we need salvation from ourselves, from our sin. Jesus came on a mission, on a purpose to save. (laughs) But it begs the question, doesn't it? Why did God have to become man in order to save us from our sins? He's God, after all, right? (laughs) Couldn't he save us without leaving heaven? Isn't there some other way? In Hebrews 9, 22, the author tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In Old Testament times, God instituted the sacrificial system in Israel to give them a pathway to forgiveness from sins by sacrificing bulls and goats. But in Hebrews 10, verse 4, the author says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So so what's the deal? (laughs) Did God give a sacrificial system that wasn't good enough? Yeah, he did. Because it was pointing to something that was to come in Jesus. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Our sin deserves the death penalty. Even the smallest sin we've ever committed deserves the death death penalty. The blood of animals could never satisfy the penalty for our sin. Man's sin requires man's blood. The only way our sins can be dealt with is if we shed our blood or if someone shed their blood for us. And Jesus came to offer his blood for us. After living a perfect life that we could never live, he died a guilty death that he didn't deserve. That's how he saved us from our sins, by being our substitute. 
But that's not the only reason he came. He came really for so much more. He came not only to pay for our sins, but to welcome us into his arms. He came not just to fix our problems, but to actually give us peace. He came not just to save us, but to redeem us. He came not just to deal with us, but to be with us. And that's our third point. Jesus is Emmanuel. Look at verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here Matthew quotes Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is his name. The Lord saves. Emmanuel is his nature. God with us. Here's why this matters so much. At some point in our lives, this question pops up into our mind. Has God abandoned me? I mean, where is he? Sometimes we suffer so profoundly and we wonder if God has forsaken us. You know, our, our, our Bedford Falls turns into Pottersville. Our childhood dreams of BB guns never arrive on Christmas morning. Our cousin Eddies are the only ones who show up, lugging their junk along with them, making our embarrassment greater and our seasons harder. Our Christmas is stolen and there's no song around the tree in the morning because the Grinch actually knew how to strike our real hopes. There is no miracle on 34th Street or any other street for that matter. We're left home alone and no one is coming. Life sometimes feels that way, doesn't it? Way down deep inside. What does Christmas say to those feelings? It says, God is with you in all of that. Every feeling of abandonment you have, every feeling of forsakenness that you can't shake, every pain, every sorrow, every tear, Jesus himself knows and sees. Not from heaven, from earth from your eyes. He knows. Now, that doesn't mean that life is easy, does it? I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't have to live through Pottersville. It doesn't mean that our hopes aren't sometimes disappointed. It doesn't mean others don't cause us problems. It doesn't mean that what's precious to us isn't stolen. But it does mean that you aren't alone. Your life is not limited to what this world can give. It's not limited to what you can achieve. It's not limited to what you can get through your hard work and sacrifice. Your life is now defined by a miracle. God with you. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. It's so easy for us to believe that God is against us, isn't it? 
I mean, he has every reason to be, really. Our sins are many. Our failures just pile up before us. Our weaknesses shine brighter than our strengths. But Christmas says God is not against us, but with us. I just, I just want that to settle on our heart today. Christmas means God is with you. Jesus makes this a reality. He entered this very real world that you and I live in right now. He came into this darkness. He came into this situation. He came into this difficulty. He came into this life of suffering. He came into this judgy world with its constant demands and never-ending criticisms and unwavering conflict. He came into this to be with you. In fact, God is so with you that there's not a single second when he turns from you. He never gets weary of you. He hears your cries. He knows your need. He sees your sin, and instead of turning away, he comes to save. He's your ally when you feel abandoned and alone. He's your defender when you are guilty. He is your justifier when you have no excuses. He is your surety when there is only uncertainty. He is the anchor of your soul when your life hangs in the balance. He is personally involved with you. Jesus is more than an action that he accomplishes, salvation. He is also a presence with you. Jesus came to be your savior and, get this, your friend. He actually likes you. And this wasn't our idea, was it? (laughs) This was his. We would never imagine such a thing. Us, friends with God? We think we need to earn him, but he gives himself freely to the undeserving. He didn't wait for us to come around. He didn't wait for our strength to compel him. He didn't measure our success before stepping down from heaven. He came to our weaknesses and our failures and our unworthiness. He entered our darkness with his light. He made himself our friend when we were still his enemy. He turned our life around and he keeps doing it. In a way, you know, this Christmas that we're seeing in Matthew's gospel is only the start of many Christmases. Christmas is a constant reality in our lives because Jesus is ever with us. We actually know that's true because of what Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel. This is, we didn't have to assume that God would never leave us. Jesus came and told us he wouldn't. And behold... I am with you always. Not just today. Not just in that thing you have to face this week that you're not really sure how it's going to turn out. Not in your greatest fears of the future. But forever to the end of the age. 
Jesus did not come for a visit. He came for a lifetime, for your eternity. Still, perhaps we think we need to be a certain way or act in a certain manner or join a certain club for Jesus to save us. Well, to get rid of all of that, let's just look at the line of people from which he came. We see that in the passage right before us. We're not going to read it now, but you probably know it well. They're not impressive moral specimens, are they? They're murderers, adulterers, liars, backstabbers, lawless, sinful, guilty. Sam Albury says, the family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. Jesus himself said he came not for the righteous, but the sinner, not for the well, but for the sick. All we need to have Jesus is need. Our sin and weakness that we believe disqualifies us actually qualifies us for his grace. Jesus came to the lowly, for the lowly. He's not just with the cool kids. He's with all who are weary and need rest. All who mourn and long for comfort. All who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. All who fail and desire strength. And all who sin and need a Savior. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. Still, we may wonder how this will all turn out. I mean, I know I do. I mean, just, just give us enough time. Won't we mess this up? And in a sense, yeah, I, I, we can sab- sabotage our lives with ongoing sin. But not Ultimately. If we trust in Jesus' work on our behalf and keep turning to him with the empty hands of faith, we will see that the good work that God began, he will bring to completion. His promises are sure. Christmas proves it. He will raise our dead body to new life at the end of this age. We will live and rule and reign with him forever and not even our sin can make that untrue now. He died for our sin. He rose for our justification. He oversees our sanctification. And one day with him, we will receive our glorification. Christmas means nothing, nothing can stop us now. Because nothing can stop Emmanuel. There's an expiration date on all this world's brokenness. On all of our brokenness. Christmas guarantees it. One day, Pottersville will be no more. Bedford Falls will be restored. All of your deepest, craziest hopes for joy and love and peace will be finally and fully complete and satisfied forever. And Christmas... Christmas is our opportunity to receive that gift right now. To accept all of this from the loving hands 
of Jesus Christ. God, man, and Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ, for the gift of Jesus, whose very name means the Lord saves, for his nature that tells us that you are with us, even in our darkest moments, even in our deepest sins. You have not abandoned us. And Christmas has proved, Lord, let us lean into that. Let us believe that and receive that this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.